Hey, Blackhawk Church, uh, great uh, to see you. Well, I don't actually see you, you guys are seeing me. Thanks for uh, tuning in and, uh, you know, um, following us uh, on this uh, second of this uh, series. Hey, I want to say a, a special thank you to uh, Pastor Charles Wong and the Blackhawk uh, Chinese uh, Ministry. Uh, everybody in Blackhawk Chinese Ministry, Dijong Zime Ping An. And so uh, Pastor Wong has a difficult uh, task uh, last Sunday and this Sunday to actually literally translate uh, into Mandarin uh, the message. So that is uh, tough. Uh, today's talk is the a second um, part of really one talk, and we're calling this talk Race and Faith. So, you know, I hate to say this, but, you know, if you didn't see last week's uh, talk, that's the first half of one talk. The whole talk's like 70 minutes, so you missed the whole first half, so you're going to be out of context. So maybe just push stop or pause or whatever you do and go back and watch last week's message because my message today is not going to make any sense uh, to you. You need to watch the first half. So this is the, actually the second half. So next week, we'll be going back uh, to uh, the Psalm uh, series that we started at the end of May. And Pastor Matt Metzger is going to be preaching one of my very favorite Psalms, Psalm 139. So we'll go back to that uh, next week. But last week, as we uh, began this uh, talk about race and faith, you know, I told you guys that it was a complicated and a complex subject. And that was a huge, that's a huge understatement. And it's not only complex and complicated, it's also volatile. And uh, boy, I uh, got some uh, feedback uh, last week from last week's message. We got feedback uh, from uh, uh, some people would say something like, uh, oh my gosh, that message was totally driven by the progressive liberal in the Democratic Party, um, where you're completely political and everything. And then, so what's one side? And then the other side is like, Pastor Chris, you really blew it. You lacked courage. You didn't go far enough. And pretty much everything else uh, in between uh, those two things. So uh, let me just kind of talk to you as your friendly neighborhood pastor. So thank, thank you. Thank you for the feedback, actually. And uh, I love every one of you uh, that gave feedback uh, to us. So really uh, appreciate the feedback. Blackhawk Church is a big church. So we have sheep from uh, all kinds of different uh, perspectives uh, that are part of this one uh, church. And you know what? We actually think that's like a good thing. So uh, there you go. But sheep also tend to uh, wander. And... Uh, it's kind of my responsibility as one of the shepherds around here to really be grounded and sit at the feet of the chief shepherd, who's Jesus Christ, and to get a sense of what Jesus would have us be about at this moment. So, um, and I, I don't usually like punt away to like spiritual language and stuff like that, but I really sensed after prayer that what the Lord would want would us to be focusing on like the huge, the big project, the huge project, what he's all about and what, what his incarnation is all about, what he's all about as our Lord. And that is, is, is this idea of reconciling us to God and reconciling humanity uh, to themselves and bringing unity to all uh, people and forming the body of Christ. He's all about uh, that. So uh, I decided that we would focus on one uh, passage of scripture and that's in Ephesians 4. So I kind of zeroed down to one uh, verse and here's the verse right here. Be completely humble 
and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So this is kind of like quiz, if you saw last week's message. So like, it's not written to us. It's written for us, not to us. But Paul wrote that uh, to the people that lived in Ephesus. And he was writing about the, this great project that, the, that Christ is all about, about bringing two different groups of people together, the Jews and the Gentiles, who for centuries had, had hated each other and were apart. But Jesus, uh, by his death, burial, and resurrection, was forming in his body one new humanity, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. One you, new humanity. And as he's bringing these different groups of people together to form one new humanity, it's by the power of his love and the power of, of the Holy Spirit. But we have a responsibility, and that is we should be completely humble and gentle with each other, bearing with one another in love. So I felt like that could apply actually to the situation that we're in today. We find ourselves in, in our world today because there are, over the centuries, tons of things that tend to divide the body of Christ. But we believe those things that tend to divide the body of Christ are not as powerful as the Lord who wants to actually unite us. What's dividing the body of Christ now is, is a race. And so we are focusing on that. Because the protests that are happening in our world today are not completely about the tragic death of George Floyd, as terrible as that is, that's really kind of the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. It's, it's, it's kind of lit a bigger fire, protest. And there's something deeper that's going on in our culture. And I talked about it last week, it's this idea of systemic racism. A systemic racism is difficult uh, to see it's not like overt, ra overt racism would be like just a blatant and unapologetic uh, use of symbols and words and language just to, just to discriminate against someone else, just this blatant. Systemic racism is not like that. It's, it's deeper. It's harder to see. And for many of us in the white majority culture, uh, we don't get it. We don't get it. We might say something like, um, you know what, I don't understand what all the protests are about. You know, I have black friends and I treat black people fairly, so let's just move on now. And so I'm saying, no, there's something, there's something deeper that's actually happening in our world. Systemic racism is about history, it's about policies, it's about laws. It's like baked into the cake. And many of us who are in a white majority can't sense that. So I used an illustration. Uh, about something my wife and I completely did as, you know, classic bad parents. And so when my daughter was in fourth grade, she complained that she had a stomachache. We took her to the doctor. The doctor said, yeah, it's probably a virus. But uh, one day on a Sunday, she was just writhing in pain, and we weren't listening. We, we misdiagnosed. We basically said, Missy, you're overreacting. But... Then my wife finally paid attention, took her to the hospital, and she had an appendix that was about ready to rupture. And last week's message, I said that we may be in danger of misdiagnosing those of us in the white majority culture and not, and not listening. 
So then I said, let's listen. So that's this message. A lot of this message is going to be about, let's just listen. So uh, I interviewed uh, three uh, different people uh, this past uh, week, and here are these uh, leaders. Dr. Christy Clark Pujara, Associate Professor of History in the Department of Afro-American Studies at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Percy Brown, Jr., Director of Equity and Student Achievement in Middleton Cross Plains Area School District, you know, right here. And then Reuben L. Anthony, Jr., President and CEO of the Urban League of Greater Madison. I had a great time interviewing these people, and we, we have a tremendous tech team, you guys, because we, we got a lot of footage, and we kind of boiled it down to about, it's about 20 minutes that we're going to ask you to listen to this. And let me just kind of say this. Some of us are going to go, when we listen, we're going to go, but, 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 stop, okay, stop, 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 okay, just be completely gentle and humble, patient. Bearing with one another in love. So let's just, let's listen and let's try to learn. Here we go, watch this. Christy, how and why did a nation founded upon liberty and freedom perpetuate human bondage? The way that Americans are told their history, K through 12, is carefully constructed. One of the first things you're told about as a kid and when telling the story of America and what it means to be American is the story of the Puritans. And you wear those belt buckles and the hat. Hmm. Why do we tell that story first? You can tell a story about a cooperation between European colonists and Native Americans. And you can twist that story to be something cute and palatable that can be turned into a Disney movie like Pocahontas. Hmm. Very few Americans can trace themselves back to the Puritans, yet that is the story that we want to begin with. We don't begin with the most populous and wealthy and most powerful colony, which was Virginia the birthplace of race-based slavery. We begin our story in New England, and we talk about hardy farmers and families working hard together and a Puritan work ethic. What we don't say is, what was their business? So New England farmers were growing a little bit of corn, wheat, potatoes, onions, they were raising pigs and cattle and horses. Who were they selling it to? Nobody in Europe wants that stuff. They had that stuff. They were selling it to slaveholders and slavers in what we now call the Caribbean, where they were building sugar plantations that enslaved millions and millions of people of African descent. When the United States was founded, a compromise was made. And that compromise cemented and secured systemic racism in the United States. But the Constitution, as it was 
finalized in 1787 and then ratified in 1789, was a pro-slavery document. That's not my opinion, it's just a statement of fact. How do I know that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document? Well, you have the three-fifths clause. The three-fifths clause said that all other persons, because they were smart, the founding fathers did not want the words slave, slavery, and enslavement in the founding document of a democracy, even though two-thirds of the founding fathers owned people, and many of them owned hundreds of people. They were smart. They did not want those words to tarnish the document. And so they say things like other persons. So if you're not free and you're not alien, those other persons are millions of enslaved people that live and reside in the nation, that legally belong to someone else, that are held as chattel. And the only people that are held as chattel, and this is a holdover from colonial law, are people that are descendant from Africans. The law is what made race meaningful, and I'll give you the best example, and that's Virginia. In Virginia, you can look at colonial law and see how race-based slavery came to be. You get laws that say things like, children born to enslaved mothers take on the status of their mothers. If your mother was enslaved, then you're going to be enslaved. So now you don't make people slaves, slaves are born too. And then you make it illegal for white women to have children with black men, but you don't make it illegal for white men to have children with black women. Now these are laws, right? You can go and look up the colonial laws that criminalize sex, but they only do it one way. Why? Because slaves are born. And when a white man rapes a black woman, that child belongs to him if she's enslaved. And then there's special laws. People that are black have to follow these laws, even if they're not enslaved. They have to follow a curfew. They can't own real property. That's gonna become the purview of whiteness. And this is where white privilege comes from. So no matter how poor you were as a white person, you had the privilege of opportunity. You didn't have to stay that way. But slavery becomes this lifelong, perpetual, inheritable condition for people of African descent. You go anywhere in the world, any time in the world, most societies had unfree people, people whose labor didn't belong to them, people who were mistreated socially, politically, physically. But this idea that one group of people are gonna be forever slaves and we're gonna attach it to skin color, that kind of absurd, extreme, gross form of slavery is born out of colonization and we adopted it as a country and it's baked in to who we are. By the time we get to the middle of the 19th century, cotton accounts for 58% of all US exports. Nothing has ever since then been more important to the American economy. And where was that cotton sold from? It was sold from the New York Stock Exchange that was initially called the New York Cotton Exchange, J.P. Morgan. Where did J.P. Morgan make their money? 
out of the transport of enslaved people from Virginia to Texas, right? The infamous Lehman Brothers, how did that firm begin? It was a cotton firm, right? The economics of slavery in places like New York and Boston and Philadelphia, it was central. This is where the commodities trade was done. So the actual work was often localized in a plantation in the South, but the finances, who insured those plantations? Who insured those people on those plantations? It's New York Life and Company, right? Why do we build the railroads to get those slave-picked commodities out of the South? The system of slavery in the United States was never a Southern system. It was always a national one. We built the steamships, again, to get the commodities out of the South where they are packaged and then shipped out of the North. It is it's all the economy. It's just all interrelated. But we don't talk about it. When you are told the Industrial Revolution in high school, it's told separately from the story of slavery. And when you're told about all of the millions of European immigrants who come to the U.S. to work in factories, they're working in factories that are built and dependent upon slave labor. They're coming for opportunity, and that opportunity was built from slavery. So they didn't ever have to own an enslaved person to benefit from slavery. The streets of New York, the streets of Providence and Newark were paved with duties paid on slaves. Slavery built the infrastructure of this country and everybody benefited from it, whether they ever owned an enslaved person or not. It's the labor of enslaved people that made America the land of opportunity. And all those people who came and benefited from those opportunities benefited from slavery. And it's something that we don't think about and we don't talk about because it is deeply unpleasant. I hear white people say, my ancestors did it the right way. The white way used to just be white. It wasn't that you passed a citizenship test. It's not that you passed an English test. It's not that you paid fees. It's not that you filled out all the correct paperwork. It was simply be white. And that whiteness bought you citizenship and access to the ballot box in Wisconsin. Now think about how infuriating that was to black Americans who had been in the country before it was a country, whose blood, sweat, and tears were in the soil. But racism, like the nation, has been baked into who and what we are here. I drove by a neighborhood today on my way here from McFarland, a neighborhood that Conrad Elvigen helped write a restrictive covenant for that said people of Ethiopian descent, they meant black, shall never live here. Percy, could you help us understand what systemic racism is and how you see it like today in Dane County? Systems operate and are governed by laws and policies, right? So let's just think about laws and policies. 246 years of enslavement, it was against the law for blacks to learn how to read and write. And if enslaved blacks were found to be literate or having the ability to write, um, there would be violence associated with that, right? So just put that into context, for 246 years, if a group of people have been robbed of an opportunity to educate themselves, right? And, and I can't get into the reasons why. So you have that, 246 years, 
and then you have 100 years of separate and unequal where black schools were receiving outdated textbooks. Um, when you looked at the facilities, they didn't come close um, to the white school. So you had about 100 years of that, yeah. right? Now we have Brown. And Brown was this big effort to desegregate schools. But let's talk about the unintended consequences of the Brown decision. So as black students were being integrated into white schools, black schools shut down, which decimated an infrastructure that I think is important mm -hmm. to the black community. You have to safely assume that as we were sending black children into white schools, we were sending them into hostile environments, filling them and sending them into environments where there were people that hated them, right? The day after Dr. King got assassinated in 1968, my dad was a junior. He walked into the classroom, that all-white classroom, and on the blackboard it said, I'm glad that N-word is dead. Wow. And the teacher left it up there. If they really wanted to, there was a pool, thousands, tens of thousands of black teachers that lost their jobs because of black schools closed. And if the systems and the people that are running those systems are like, if we're gonna be bringing black kids in, we need to make sure that they have their teachers mm -hmm. with them. Right. So now you broke this element of children being able to see folks that look like them, that they can connect with, right? And not to say that white folks can't do that because there have been white folks in, in my life that have been very instrumental in terms of my success. Then the biggest one, um, in terms of systemic racism and education, it's the curriculum. And I hate to put you on the spot. Do you know who Garrett, <laughs> do you know who Garrett Morgan is? No. I've put this question out in the space in front of hundreds of educators and said, stand if you know who Garrett Morgan is. Garrett Morgan is a black man who only had an elementary education, but invented the three-way stoplight. And just one more, Louis Latimer. No, I don't know him. Same response, if I put that out there to a lot of educators. I'm not saying that all educators don't know, but Lewis Latimer wrote all of the patents for Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell. And if you go back and look historically, black people in America have contributed phenomenal things to advance the society, and oftentimes their inventions were stolen by white folks. And, and this is a part of the educational system where we have our curriculum that works against the well-being of students of color. And if we fail to confront that and to educate our youth about race, the truth about race, and how racism has evolved and, and, and the atrocities and the, and the violence associated with all of that, if we don't inform our children, history will repeat itself. But then on the flip side, uh, school districts are not using literature from uh, James Baldwin, or, or I don't see the autobiography of Frederick Douglass as a required reading, or um, The Beloved Community, which is a text that Dr. King wrote. That's not part of mm -hmm. required reading in our English. So when you think about it from a hiring perspective, systems have to do better and have intentionality because with intentionality, change can happen. Because in Middleton, like I said, in 2012, uh, I was the only certified black staff in 2014. I became the first executive of color. 
in Middleton, but I just know at the leadership level, it went from about 3% now to about 30% in less than 10 years. And because of an intentionality, we've, we've gotten wins in hiring, but we've also seen an uptick in graduation rates because we are doing more to provide equitable opportunities for our historically disenfranchised kids. So it's multi-tiered um, in terms of really reanalyzing the systems and doing things to disrupt, dismantle, and rebuild. In this work of, of racial justice, uh, there is a passage out of the Bible that holds so true to the work and what I use to, to keep the energy and the fire going for this pursuit of truth and justice. Um, and it comes from Ephesians 6, and I'll just read a couple of verses from that. And it says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I really use that to ground me in this fight for racial justice, but it, because it allows me to teach and work with folks in ways around this issue that I work to help them understand that what I'm bringing to them is not about them, although they have a role to play and that this issue of systemic racism is really um, an issue of the American soul. I was a budget analyst at the Department of Veterans Affairs, but I was looking to promote and uh, be a manager. So I went to the Department of Transportation and there was an uh, entry-level supervisor position open there. As soon as I got the job, and I had been on the job for maybe two months, a person who actually is a friend now, um, she came up to me and she said, you're pretty talented for an affirmative action hire. And so um, she just assumed that uh, I was an affirmative action hire um, because I was black. When I got to know her, um, she didn't have as much academic preparation as me. She had one master's degree, I had two. Um, I had way more practical experience than her, um, but you know, she got in. It took me a, a, a while uh, to get in. And so I spent, ended up spending 20 years at the Department of Transportation, and I ended up becoming the uh, chief operating officer there. So I started out with a three-person section, ended up having 3,600 employees and a $3.2 billion budget. So everybody ended up working for me before I left, except one guy who was the secretary. But one night, I'm sitting in my office, and uh, it got to be about 6.30, and there was a recruitment going on for um, an entry-level urban planning position. Get a knock on the door. One of my staff walks in, and he says, hey, Rube, he says, I'd like to talk to you. I said, come on in. And so he sits down, and he says, you know, he says, we've got this interviewing process going on, and uh, there's one black guy, and he's got two master's degrees, too. He's got, a ma he's got an MBA, and he's got an urban planning degree. And he says, you know, he's you know, probably the best guy in the pool. But he said, but I got a problem. He says, I might not hire this guy because he's got jerry curls in his hair. And I'm like, jerry curls in his hair? And so I said, well, what do you mean? So he started telling me, he says, well, he's got all these little plaits in his hair. I'm like, little plaits in his hair? I said, okay. I said, but that's not jerry curls. I said, those are dreadlocks. And I said, you know, this is urban fashion. You see doctors and lawyers with this. And I said, but you tell me he's the most qualified. 
He's got the best credentials, but you don't want to hire him uh, because he's got these Jerichos and they say, but they're not even Jerichos. So right off the bat, you know, you've got this uh, cultural bias um, that you think something's wrong with this guy because his style is different. I said, they may not have that in Walworth, Wisconsin, um, but that is standard, you know, around the country and, and urban cities. I really think that for him, you know, he had some implicit biases going on. He just didn't want to hire this guy um, because he was black. And we see that so often that um, there are some things that stand in the way and they have continued to stand in the way. He didn't even realize that he had these implicit biases because he told me, he says, if this guy would have green hair, red hair, we would bring him in here, you know, too. But I said, no, uh, you wouldn't have brought him in here if he had green or red hair because we got people walking around here with green or red hair and they're, and they're doing jobs in IT and all these other things. And so it was like a bias that he didn't even know, a blind spot that he didn't even know, and that's how implicit bias works. A lot of us have these biases, and even us, you know, have these biases, and we don't realize that they're, that, that they're interacting and they're stopping us from making decisions that might be in favor uh, for African Americans uh, economically. What I think is significant about what's happening right now is that we're at this transformational moment. There are points in time in our history um, where we change our culture and, and we change our institutions, and I think that's where we are. And I was in church um, the other night. We were on a conference call, and uh, one of the older mothers was participating in a conversation like we're having here today. Uh, she was near 90 years old, and she said, you know what's different about today? When I look out there, I see those young white kids marching side by side with black kids. If I would say anything um, to our Christians that might be watching this is that this is one of those times that we might need to sit at the feet of some of these young people and listen to them and to understand from them, you know, why, you know, they believe and why they fight, you know, for justice in ways that, you know, some of us, you know, haven't been able to fight. But when I look at um, some of my um, children's white friends, they're um, authentically friends, and there's something different about um, this next generation. So just like the mother in our church that gives her hope, I'm hopeful um, because um, these young people, you know, they're, they're looking at things different. And our young African-Americans are, are different as well. You know, they're going out there and protesting because they know that all of their life, they've seen excessive use of force, they've seen deadly use of force, and they don't want that future. Christ um, encourages us to uh, respect our fellow um, brothers. Christ encourages us to, um, to look for righteousness and truth, right, and, and justice. And we have to make sure that we're moving our congregation um, towards justice. Some people will, you know, scream and kick and holler, and that's okay. Um, but we've got to spend the time, you know, um, continue to teach what Christ wants us to do. I said a lot, but I would tell Blackhawk Church um, for um, those who are um, doing the work, who are building um, relationships with um, um, black churches like uh, Mount Zion, Fountain of Life, and all the other churches that are out there existing, that's the right thing to do. It's powerful when Christians come together. You know, one of the things um, that I see um, you guys doing is um, um, trailblazing and, and leading the way in a lot of things. Trailblaze and lead the way um, towards this path to, uh, to justice. Lock hands with us and uh, encourage us. And I would tell um, the members of your congregation, again, spend time at the feet of some of these young people uh, and, and try to understand, you know, um, why um, they, they get it and, and, and some of us don't. Wow, 
<laughs> powerful. It's powerful. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Listening to Brother uh, Reuben Anthony. He's a, a deacon at Mount Zion Church. Yep. And uh, when he was sitting there telling, saying, Blackhawk Church trailblazing, I just said, praise God uh, yes. that he yes. sees us that way. Hey, listen, uh, sorry to not introduce you. No, it's all right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> kind of rude, isn't it? So, hey, this is uh, Pastor Collier McNair. And uh, pa- he's one of our pastors on uh, staff here, but not only is he a pastor, but he's just a great uh, friend. So thanks for uh, joining me in this conversation. And listen, um, just uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your experience. Well, Chris, again, thanks, man. It's so good to be here. As many of you or some of you may or may not know, I actually attended a college at Edgewood College right here in Madison, Wisconsin in the early 90s. And there uh, wasn't a whole lot of diversity back then. Um, in fact, I was usually the only black student in my class. Um, I graduated with a, a marketing management degree in business. And a lot of times uh, the class assignments that, we, uh, uh, that were required um, were case studies and, and group projects. And a lot of times I was, I was by myself. Uh, I would reach out to hmm. classmates in, in, in uh, in my classes, and it was really difficult to get them to reciprocate my efforts to connect, um, you know, and so I had to find other ways to get my, my assignments done. Um, I even had a, a particular uh, professor, it was an accounting professor, in fact, uh, would frequently uh, dismiss me, you know, in class when I would ask questions wow. and just kind of brush it off. And in fact, this, this same professor pulled me to the side one day, and he says, you should drop this class. And I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I was <laughs> really disappointed. In fact, I thought to myself, I'd rather fail this class than to drop this class. Now, this kind of uh, treatment uh, from educators is not unusual for African-American students. In fact, it's not new, it's not uncommon. Uh, it's something that we, we hear all the time. You should drop a class or, uh, don't bother with AP classes or don't apply to UW or some other division, division one school. So anyway, I ended up graduating. Then I moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota. I landed this uh, job as an, uh, an assistant manager at one of the local chain record stores. I was really excited about, uh, you know, having a music store, working in a music store in music industry as a base salary. And then I could pursue other things, other interests uh, related to, to music. Now, I remember one day uh, my, my manager came up to me and he said, uh, you know, our, our regional uh, district director is pushing for more pop sales. Now, for those of you who don't know what pop is, it's an acronym for points of purchase sales. So it's those additional sales uh, that you make when people come to the cash register. Um, so our, our biggest pop item was this replay card. Now, it wasn't a credit card but it was uh, kind of like a rewards card. So each time you buy something in the store, then you could earn points that you could later redeem for anything in the store, whether it was CDs or cassettes, you know, or cassettes. any other, yeah, cassettes. Yeah, yeah, You know, or any other store paraphernalia. So um, now, now it wasn't really easy selling these replay cards, cards because it was an additional cost and it wasn't really cheap. And in fact, uh, the whole staff, all of the employees who worked at a particular store that I was in, 
they only managed to sell about 48 of these things the in, in, in the previous year. Yeah, yeah the, the whole year. It, it, the whole year. Okay. And in the first five months, Chris, I, I sold 65 yeah. <laughs> of these things. Yeah. Man, look, man, that was like a badge of honor for me. Yeah, no kidding. You know, my, my yeah. manager was trying to figure out, man, how are you doing this? He said, you really getting a lot of attention. The regional district director, man, we have to train you in some other higher uh, level management stuff, some inventory stuff and what have you. I mean, I mean they had me uh, closing the store, opening the store. Uh, uh, you know, I, I would, any given night, I would, I would handle cash deposits over a hundred thousand oh. dollars, you know. So it's just really exciting. And uh, they asked me to train other, stu you know, other yeah, uh, employees yeah. working there. You know, c c what was I doing? And so anyway, in the meantime, uh, there was a, a young white lady who we just recently hired, and um, I noticed that my manager was spending a lot of time with her. And uh, one day I saw her doing some inventory work, and 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 so I asked her about it. Now, my manager must have noticed that I was talking about it, so he, he came over and uh, he, he let me know. He says, well, you know, we, we just hired her as a manager trainee to take over this store or to be assigned to a new store. And man, I, I you wow. know, I, my, my heart sunk yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And, and I, you know, now I don't know if she had a college degree or not, but I do know that my manager, uh, he didn't have a college degree because he, he, he told me he had, he had dropped out of, out of school. And uh, he was at this store because he knew the regional director who asked him to come take over this, this store because they were thinking about closing it down. Now, I know some of you may be thinking out there, uh, maybe this wasn't racially motivated. Um, maybe it was something else. Or um, maybe she really was more qualified. But that's the problem that, that people of color face uh, in this country. We just don't know, especially in places where there is no explicit discrimination. And, and so we, we have this question in our mind, and we're, we're thinking, did race play a part in in a certain decision. And, and, and nobody's gonna admit it. In fact, if you're white, you're, you're not gonna see this at all. And, and so it just sits there. It sits there in, in, in your mind. Like a psychological virus. Yes, yes, yes indeed. It sit there and it begins to, to color all of my interactions, all of my encounters, all of my conversations and it, it just goes on and on. And, and you're right, it's a, it's a psychological burden that black people of color bear every day because of the historic systemic racism that uh, we face in this it's country. Just, it's all the time and, it's, yes. and I think, I just wanna emphasize this, um, those of us in white majority culture, we, we look at that story and go, well, maybe she's better, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But it's just, it's, it's the way it comes because of everything that's happened. Absolutely. I remember Absolutely. once you said to me, uh, Chris, when you, you know what I'm going to say, right? Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> when you go into a store, you're Chris. Yep. Yep. When, when I go in the store, I'm, I'm black. I'm black. I'm a black man. And it's just ingrained yep. over and over that's right. and over that's again. Right. That's right. 
Thanks uh, for sharing that, uh, Coley. Let, now let me just, we're just going to be as crystal clear as we possibly can be. Systemic racism is wrong. It's evil. It's sinful. It's dehumanizing. Anytime uh, we write laws or policies or we treat people in such a way that one race is advantaged over another simply because of their ethnicity or race, that just goes against Yes. Uh, everything that God wants. God's created all people in his image, all people. Jesus uh, has this huge project. Of, he wants to bring all kinds of different people together to, in the body of Christ yes. to form yes. one humanity. Yes. And it goes against this great command that Jesus uh, gave us. It's like, a, it's like his, Jesus' summary of like the Bible uh, goes like this. It's Matthew uh, 7, verse uh, 12. So in most things... Do, oh, it doesn't say that, does it? No. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, that verse alone would say, yeah, any like systems would be wrong. So let me just be honest with uh, <laughs> my white majority um, brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, I, at Blackhawk Church, you know, I'm just pretty sure that uh, most everyone would say that racial discrimination is wrong. Uh, we would be for racial justice and equality and fairness and justice. I think we're, our church is about that and you're about that. I, I, really, I really believe that. Mm. The disagreements come yeah. upon and the solutions. Yes. Yes. So yes. what kind of solutions can we... And that's where the political discussions happen. Yes. That's where reasonable Christ followers can disagree about different kinds of things. And so there, there, there you go. That's, yes. that's yes. what takes place. But what that's we right. cannot disagree on mm -hmm. is that we cannot, we cannot ignore mm -hmm. racism. That's right. We cannot ignore systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we need those of us, I know for myself, mm -hmm. and I don't want to speak for everybody in the white culture, yeah. but yeah. for me, yes. I just benefit like sitting down and listening to people like that, yes, yes. listening to and becoming our friendship has yes. taught me so much. Oh, Those are the yes. kind of things. Yes. And so we're just encouraging you uh, to learn. Yes. So uh, we have this resource uh, page. You can go to the resources and we have all kinds of things in there. And let me just say this, so because I already got emails. That doesn't mean that we agree with every, no, every it, word it that no, no. every author has said in those books. That we right, don't, we're right. not saying that. That's right. We're just saying these, we feel, can stimulate learning and can help us see another, another uh, side. Yes. So I, I, think, I think we would all agree that the kingdom of God is about righteousness mm -hmm. and justice. Yes. But this, my brother, this is a... It's not just about righteousness and justice. No, no. It's also about community. That's right. That's right. And that's why, that's, that's, that's our story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's it. You know, Chris, I, I am aware of all of the uh, narratives that exist out there uh, on both sides of the racial coin. I know exactly what they are. Um, but we, we can't go there right now. But here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking... I'm, I'm betting that every one of you watching right now, you're, you're looking at this and you're saying, hey, that, that's Pastor Coley McNair. Um, he, he's a pastor at Blackhawk Church. He's a man of God. He's got a wife and kids. When I see him, I don't see him differently. When I look at him, I don't see a criminal. 
or a thug or a victim. Yet, that's the kind of racism that's easy to see. It's easy to identify. And it's easy to confess. Systemic racism, it's what we don't see that infiltrates our minds, our hearts, and, and even the American evangelical church. And it hurts our testimony. It hurts our witness for the gospel. You know, when, when I asked to join uh, Blackhawk, well, let me just back up. You know, I, I'm, I'm blessed, Chris, because, I, you know, I was able to miss, I was able to meet Chris Dolson and, and, and build a, mm. a, a godly trusting relationship with my friend, Chris, yeah. our pastor. I'm, I'm more blessed, brother. Oh, man. I don't know. We can I'm argue that blessed. all day long. Let's, let's argue about that right now. Uh, I'm more blessed. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm telling you. And it was, but it was, it was not, not at first. No. I mean, because yep. yep. there's not trust. That's right. That's and then right. we had to learn to trust each other. Yeah, that's right. We kept visiting a certain restaurant. And it, yeah, you know, you it, it, it right. helped with the right. yeah. Anyway, you know, so, you know, I, I count myself very blessed. I mean, even Percy Brown said, many white folks have been a blessing in his life. And, and I'm thankful for that. And so when, when I asked Blackhawk, um, can we join? Can we, can we merge with you? Zion City. Though. Zion City. Because you're That's the right. senior pastor of That's a church. Right. Senior pastor of Zion City. For, yeah. for, for, and you're going, can we merge yep. with That's you right. guys? That's right. That's right. And, and it was because I... I saw a problem that the, the kingdom of God is divided on earth. Um, and, you know, Blackhawk was actually, you, you guys were thinking about just letting us meet and, and do church our own way. Right. You know, but, and, and maybe that would have been good. But I wanted to see God do more. I wanted to see him move in cross-cultural relationships. You know, we needed to become you. They needed to become us. Us needed to become we. And, and it's, it's not for my glory. It's not for Chris's glory. It's not even for, for Blackhawk's glory, but it's to the glory of God. Preach it. Absolutely. And so, you know, I, I think about Joshua in the Bible. And, and when he declared to Israel, whose side are you on? He wasn't talking about Republican or, or Democrat. Those weren't options. But he said, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Will it be God? Will it be man? The choice is yours. Look, I'm, I'm not trying to get you to do anything here. I'm just simply asking you to be the brother and sister that you think you are. If you are my brother and you are my sister, then be my brother and my sister. Show me that you care enough to at least listen and learn with open hearts. Because this, this justice and righteousness, these aren't partisan ideas. 
Amen. No, they, they are biblical callings to advocate for those who are hurting and in need of help. Hallelujah. Praise God. And so, you know, I'm, I'm standing here and I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm just, you know, this, this little old black man standing up here. And, and really, I'm, I'm just crying out to you, even pleading with you as Christ followers. Let's get on the same side. Let's get on God's side. Let's show uh, the world that we are a community. We are a loving community who's building uh, this loving community that, that, that's, that's, we're creating this community of Christ followers. Hallelujah. Amen. And, and, and we're a community that as we are working together and worshiping together, I want the world to see that, that the church does have people who are working to create a better world. I, you know, I, I, I got to, you know. Let, let, Thank you, brother. You know, Chris, let me just, just, just say this. Let's show other people in this world that black people and white people can worship together and that we can work together to reflect God's kingdom here on earth. So that his will can be done and his kingdom can come to Amen. this Hallelujah. to this world. Amen. 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 I just want to pray for us. Can I can I, can I close in you prayer? Father, we thank you right now for this moment. It is our heart's desire to be the church that you're calling for. God, we want to be your people and we want you to be our God. Hallelujah. But Lord, it's hard because we've got different people in the world and, and we, we've got different issues. And Lord, we all have uh, uh, things that, that we have gone through in different experiences and we, we all bring our own social context to these conversations. And Lord, on top of that, we got Satan running around here. And he's doing everything he can to disrupt those who are trying to love you with all of our hearts. We're trying to be a brother and a sister and a neighbor to each other. Lord, we know that this is a spiritual battle that we're in the middle of warfare and that we're fighting not only for the soul of the church but for our own souls for the soul of this country and so Lord we ask that you will bless us right now God we, we ask that you will be glorified that your name will be lifted up that you will help us for the sake of your name because thine is the kingdom and, and thine is the glory and thine is the power Lord, forever and ever, in Jesus' name, amen. amen.